Artemis endeavors to get more women and girls in the field and on the water. To support women as leaders in the conservation movement. To ensure the vitality of our lands, waters, and wildlife. Artemis endeavors to change the face of conservation. Welcome to the Artemis Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Chance, and my co-host today is Morgan Harrell. How are you doing, Morgan? I'm great. How are you? Doing great. That was a very um, South Carolina, hello, how are you? <laughs> how y'all doing? How's your mom and them? How's your mom and them, of course. Um, and our guest today is Holly Heiser. Hi, Holly. Hi, how are you? We are doing wonderful. Um, and we are just going to dive right in because... This okay. The first question: What's in your freezer? We ask uh, the vast majority <laughs> of our guests this, and I am so excited to hear what is in your freezer. Well, our freezer is a really complicated freezer because my boyfriend runs a wild food website, and so we have a lot of diversity in the freezer, and I am not responsible all for all of it. So I have put just got done putting a ton of ducks into the freezer, and we break down our ducks and use all parts. So we've got, you know, fat and legs and wings and and gizzards and hearts and all these good things so lots and lots of duck um i had a really nice upland hunting trip to kansas last fall in uh, november and brought home some prairie chicken bobwhite quail and wild pheasant and and i say wild because in california i have never gotten a wild pheasant or wild pheasant population is not doing that very well and uh, i do a little bit of fishing as well but my boyfriend is the big fisherman and um one of the things i love most in our freezer is nilgai he killed a nilgai in texas last year and Wow, it is so amazingly good. And every time we eat Nogai, it's just a treat. And uh, I think we have some wild boar left. I killed a pig last spring too. So yeah, our freezer is just about all wild stuff. Yeah, we don't really buy domestic meat at all. So it's crazy. Everything's just like vac sealed and hand labeled, which is fun. Morgan, I can identify with that. I think (laughs) maybe not to the extent that you can, but um, that's really cool. I've how many pounds of meat was that Nogai, Holly? Um, I don't remember how many pounds of meat it was, but it was really, really big and it took a lot of space. And he brought home a deer on the same trip too. And it's like, dude, you have to leave. It's like duck season's coming. You have to leave me some space <laughs> in the freezer. It was it was a little traumatic having all that space taken up. <laughs> Maybe a, a per- another pertinent question is how many freezers do you have? That's the question everyone asks. And we only have one box freezer and it's actually pretty small because we found there's just two of us here and the cats and the cats don't eat all the game that we bring home. So uh, we have a freezer where we can eat through it in a year and where we are less likely to have things fall to the bottom and you know become three or four years old and therefore inedible and freezer burned uh, beyond belief. So, but we do have two refrigerators, um, one in the garage and, uh, and one in the, in the kitchen. And uh, one small freezer. Everyone thinks our whole garage should be a walk-in freezer. And it's like, you know, we, <laughs> we'd have to turn it into a store or something, which obviously is illegal. But yeah, we can't eat that much. I try. <laughs> right. Yes. The effort, the intention is there. I can, our, our freezer, we only have one freezer as well. And it is just, it's sad this year. We didn't get a deer. Oh. Well, we had, we had one roadkill deer that we were able to get, um, but neither of us harvested a deer and yeah, it's it's bleak out there right now. Oh, man. Yeah, we had a pretty rough duck season until January. The birds got here really, really late. They were just stuck up in Canada and Washington for ages. 
And so it was looking really bleak until January. And then it was just a rampage, all duck hunting all the time. Lots of good hunts, lots of happiness, lots of satisfaction. Oh, awesome. Uh, one question I have related to your freezer, uh, uh, prairie chicken. I have, yes. what, did, what do they taste like? I've never had the opportunity or even come close to having the opportunity to try one. You know, it tastes like a grousey bird. And mm-hmm. I haven't eaten this one yet, so it's been a while since I tasted one. But when Hank was working on the book Pheasant Quail Cottontail, he got into a bunch of prairie chickens. And and to me, I am not such an upland expert that I can really define the subtle distinctions between this type of grouse and that type of pheasant. I mean, there there's similarities in groups of birds for me. So uh, yeah, that's the best I can do on that. But you want to talk about the difference between a spoonie and a widgeon and a pintail and a mallard. I'm your girl. I can talk about that all day. <laughs> You've got those <laughs> down. Well, I'm certainly not an upland connoisseur to the level that a description of a prairie chicken would mean really that much to me. But I was just fascinated at the idea of even eating one because um, when I was in undergrad, that was one of the really cool things that we got to do was go out and observe a lek from a blind oh, um, cool. in the springtime. Yeah. So that was amazing to see them, you know, up close lecking the colors and all the displays, but that's as close as I've come to a prairie chicken. So, well, I, I could tell you that the thing I, the, the most recent flavor in my mouth from prairie chicken is the taste of defeat because they <laughs> utterly defeated me when I was in Kansas. I, I was my fourth straight day of hunting. We we're doing like between six and 10 miles a day. And my host, who um, Jim Millencipher, great guy, you should call him Jim Miles and Miles Millencipher because he can go forever. I mean, he can make you cry. And we, we, we hunted on the fourth day and the way we were hunting was up and down hills instead of like up a draw the way you would with pheasants. And so we're up, down, up, down, up, down. And, and you're hoping to find the prairie chickens at the top of the hill. So you're going quickly and you don't want the dogs to get there too far ahead of you because if there's birds and they flush, you won't get a shot. So I was really hustling. And I don't know how many miles I was into it when I suddenly realized I was staggering like a drunk and not breathing well. <laughs> I said, Jim, I don't think I can do this anymore. So we had to switch to Bob Whites where you can walk as slow as you want, but you just got to shoot fast. And also I failed at that. So yeah, taste of failure. <laughs> that's, that's a, that's a taste it. in my palate. <laughs> wow. Okay. Who knew they were such grueling quarry to go after? I did not. That's, that's interesting. Yeah, it was. Um, well, I, I tell you, I want to hunt with him again next fall, and I have a, a workout regimen planned for it because um, <laughs> I don't want to fail again because I just want to live up to his standards. It's like, please approve of me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Love that. <laughs> so uh, one question I have, which is actually maybe going to be a good segue into today's topic. When you were on this trip, what kind of dogs were you hunting over? It sounds like flushing dogs. Yes. And oh man, you are going to put me on the spot here. Um, yeah. So let's skip over. That. <laughs> I'm going to say Springer Spaniel, maybe. No, um, no. Well, okay. One guy we hunted with had Goldens and it was really beautiful to watch a Golden work because I hadn't really hunted over a lot of Goldens. And then there were wire hair German type things. But if Jim ever hears this podcast and hears me not knowing... <laughs> I mean, that's the second worst thing to not knowing their names. And if you ask me that, I'm just going to hang up right now. (laughs) We won't go there. I remember a couple of their names, but not everyone's names. Yeah, no, that would be a failure. He would never invite me back. Morgan, have you ever hunted over a golden? I've never even known anyone to have an actual hunting golden. 
I have it. I just can't imagine that that hair amount of hair would do well anywhere <laughs> in the forest that we have in South Carolina. Like I have a, I have an English cocker and he's got, you know, maybe half the hair of the, of a, of a golden. And, and of course he's a lot smaller, but just that length would just, the burrs that he gets would just be, that would be a deal breaker. <laughs> well, well this shaking after every hunt. The, this golden that I was watching on one particular day, we were just walking through really tall grasses up this draw, and it was really windy, and I just have this vivid memory of watching that dog probably about 75 yards away, just sort of undulating through the grass. It was like watching art. It was so beautiful, and it was a really good dog, too. That dog was super sharp, and it was a young one as well, so um, I definitely had a positive experience, although if I were to ever get a dog. I'm a weirdo. I don't have one. I'm really interested in poodle pointers because they do both duck hunting and upland hunting. I've had some great experiences with poodle pointers hunting quail in Arizona. So very fond of that species. I've heard a lot of good things about them as well. That's why we we have a Springer Spaniel and that's why we chose, well, that and cost. We wanted a Boykin, <laughs> but we uh -huh. were in graduate school and we were uh, relatively poor. So mm -hmm. we got him to do hopefully upland and ducks and he can do both. Um, but he is an upland dog to the core. I mean, there's mm -hmm. been, there's been plenty of ducks, uh, busted by his tail wagging in the water, <laughs> just, you know, trembling, whining, wanting to run. Wonderful. Um, yeah. So can you, Holly, that you were talking about, and this is your other segue here, Ashley, in watching a dog do what it was born to do. Like uh. that. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's the thing. It's like it's seeing it and knowing it. This is, you know, whether whether you agree with it, whether it makes sense, whether whatever. This is what this dog like. That's what its instincts are telling it to do. And it is beautiful to watch every time. You, you know, before I didn't start hunting till I was 41. And before I started hunting, I kind of had this vague idea at the back of my head that hunters were lazy and cruel to make the dogs do their dirty work. And then I started hunting and watching the dogs. It's like, oh, you were wrong because those dogs love what they do. And and when I think about the joy I experience when I'm hunting, I think most often of watching dogs and thinking if I had a tail, it'd be wagging like crazy right now, too. Okay, and Morgan and I have both jumped the gun because <laughs> oh, we need you to first please tell us just a little bit about yourself, a little bit about who you are. All right, well, um, I am currently the communications director for an organization called California Waterfowl. It's a hunter, hunter it is a hunter-based nonprofit conservation organization. And we do habitat work, we do banding ducks, we have a bunch of programs to support breeding waterfowl in California, which is a thing, most people don't, aren't, don't realize that, but we have a substantial little breeding population here. Um, we also uh, have education programs for kids in schools, and we have this incredible hunt program, so proud of it, where we provide a couple thousand hunting opportunities per year. We People can hunt on private land through us when it, with this lottery-based system. So we help really increase hunter access in California. And of course, I would be remiss not to mention our advocacy work. Um, we are a force at the Capitol for hunters' rights and for wildlife, for getting the, the habitat that they need. So that's my day job. Um, I started out a long time ago as a newspaper reporter and editor. And um, right about the time I left that business, I started hunting when I was 41. So I'm very new to, well, relatively new to hunting for my age. I'm 56 now. 
and uh, and it just changed my entire life. Uh, so everything revolves around hunting now. Um, and my boyfriend, he started a blog in, let's see, we both started blogging at the same time in 2007 called Hunter Angler Gardener Cook. That's his blog. And uh, it's all about preparing wild food and it's turned into a really successful website and I'm his chief photographer for that. So that's one of my side gigs is I photograph our dinner a lot, um, <laughs> which sounds really, you know, exciting and romantic until you realize dinner gets cold while I'm photographing it. And then he reheats <laughs> it for me and brings it to my desk where I sit there editing photos and, and eating my food. Um, and then I also do photos for our cookbooks. We have five, five, yeah, five cookbooks out now. Uh, so that's sort of my side gig. And, and oh, I, how can I forget? We recently just started a Substack newsletter together. And Substack, if you hadn't heard of it, is a platform for something like a blog that instead of being advertising supported is reader supported. So we each write essays. We, uh, we post every other week and we take turns doing essays. And we have a few free essays, so you can check it out and see if you like it. And then a lot of it is for our paid subscribers. So it's a, it's a good way to be rewarded for the work that you do and provide something that's really uncluttered for people. So if folks are interested in checking that out, the newsletter is called To The Bone, and the web address is tothebone.substack.com. And Morgan is a subscriber. Yay! <laughs> I love it. I mean, and I'll and I'll say what I said earlier. I mean, I, I've been a fan of Holly and Hank for a long time. Um, I think I found Holly when I was researching waiters, probably ten years <laughs> ago, um, and and found your blog, which I think may not even been active at that point. Um, and then somewhere along the way, um, discovered uh, Hunt Gather Cook. Have all the cookbooks. They are my absolute go-to. Um, and then I, I love the, the one of my favorite things about y'all's the community that you have created is the uh, the Facebook group oh, that yeah. really offers a great resource. Um, I have put a post on there. Oh my gosh, I just cooked ten pound of hog hams and they didn't come out. What was wrong? And within ten minutes, I had like five different people, you know, commenting. So it's just such a resource and a community um, revolving around cooking that, that unique outdoor and uh, wild, wild game. It's, it's been really amazing. So and, and it's, your work. one of the things that makes it a nice community too, is that Hank runs a pretty tight ship with it and doesn't allow it to descend into what so often happens in online forums where people just tear at each other's you know, throats and, and, you know, try and one up each other and how, how much of a smart aleck they can be. So uh, it's not like that. It's a, it's a community place and you're expected to behave yourself when you're there, which makes it a place you actually want to be. Um, and a lot of forums on the internet just aren't like that anymore. So that's, yeah, I love that. And, that. and I feel like that's kind of what your blog was too, in terms of, um, and, and in any case, as I was looking through some old articles, I mean, you would post an essay, but you encouraged some feedback. You wanted that conversation to hit some of those hard topics. So oh, yeah. Well, and my blog, I should tell people that name as well. That one was called NorCal Cazadora. It's the worst name on earth because you have to spell <laughs> it and you have to spell it 16 times. But it's NorCal is in Northern California. Cazadora, which is really Casadora, which is Spanish for huntress. Um, and I love digging into the meaty topics, which is why I'm excited to be on Substack now, because I can dig into those things again. But half the things half the opinions I've come to in hunting have resulted from the really vigorous conversations we would have about those topics back when I was blogging. I might start saying, 
my position is A, and then people would have a good argument in the comment thread, and I'd be like, whoa, okay, you got a point. I think I've, I've come around to something, and and a lot of my thinking today is still shaped by things that people said to me there. In particular, um, my friend Philip Lachlan, who had the hog blog back at the time, he, uh, he I think, he called BS on me once when I was talking about our motivations for hunting, and he's like, one of the things I didn't mention whatever, wherever I was talking about it was that, you know, hunting because it's fun and I love it. And he's like, Holly, you got to be honest about that because we hunt because it's fun and we love it. And it's hard to do that when people want to say, hey, uh, wait, you're saying it's fun to kill things. And it's like, well, it's a little more well-rounded than that. But but yeah, he he called BS on me and I really appreciated that a lot. And it's it's guided so much of my thinking. So I feel like it's it's scary to me to put things out on the internet. And even though like when I put things out, it's through my position with Artemis. So, you know, it's kind of couched within the greater program. It's not just me in my own, you know, domain or speaking. I mean, sometimes some of the stuff I say is kind of personal, but I feel like when you put yourself out there like that on the internet, especially it's a vulnerable place to be. You, you know, you open the door, especially on a topic that can be controversial. Like you said, Holly, you open the door for criticism or best case scenario, new information that can shift your thinking a little bit. Yeah, I think, well, I mean, I think one of the things that characterizes me most is that I'm pretty comfortable being in uncomfortable positions. And that's just kind of a genetic thing with me. So I like exploring new ideas. And I think if you approach these things from a position of, here's where I'm coming from. Tell me what you think. Argue with me because I am happy to admit when you can shift my opinion. I'm actually excited when someone says something compelling enough to me to make me really reconsider my position. I love that. That's a moment of great discovery. Um, and, and if you can convince me I'm wrong about something, all the better because we've just had a great conversation without it descending into fisticuffs. So mm -hmm. yeah. it's kind of, it, it is a little bit scary, but I think if you approach it from a perspective of being willing to learn and being told that maybe everything you think isn't true, it's a little bit easier to take because, you know, let's face it, we can't throw all these things out there as absolutes. Something might absolutely be my opinion, but that doesn't mean it's the absolute truth for everyone. We're going deep now. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, that's where we want to go. Okay. So <laughs> we, uh, the thing, the, the thing that we've kind of been dancing around that, um, actually is what initiated our conversation with Holly today is, uh, I guess an essay. Is that what you would call it, Holly? Yeah. Yeah. Um, an essay that she wrote on, um, this to the bone, the Substack platform that we've been talking about and the title Morgan found it and sent it to me. I thought it was awesome. Obviously, Morgan did too. The title was Killing How I'd Like to Be Killed. Uh, and it really resonated with us. I, Holly, you can, if, if you'd like, you can give kind of a, a brief summary of what that um, essay was in regards to. But a big central part of it was hunting with hounds, hunting mm -hmm. with dogs. Um, and so that's kind of what we're going to dig into today. But maybe for context if you just want to walk us through kind of the the broad strokes of that. Sure. And I'll tell you that with a title like Killing, like how I'd like to be killed, it was really hard to write about it on Facebook without the AI oh. <laughs> deleting my post and putting me in Facebook jail. Um, yeah, someone shared it and said the title was Undeading How I'd Like to Be Undeaded or Unalived <laughs> How I'd Like to Be Unalived. Anyway, I digress. So the, the, the subject of this was... Um, 
sort of what I learned from going on a bear hunt with houndsmen. And uh, hounding was banned in uh, at the end of 2012 in California, hounding for bears. And I was one of the last hundred people to kill a bear over hounds. And it's an interesting experience. It's not something that I would consider my go-to. Um, and this essay gets into some of the reasons for that. I think there's a fair amount of stigma to, um, to hunting big game with hounds for a lot of reasons. Um, and there are some reasons it wouldn't be my favorite thing just because, wow, it's really loud. Baying hounds are loud. And when you sit there and you're working on an animal afterwards for a couple hours, the, it's, it's, a lot of, it's a lot of barking and baying. So one of the things I had to think about when I was doing this is, you know, I have a pretty visceral reaction to this type of hunting because I have this weird thing where I kind of always put myself in the shoes of the animal I'm hunting, either at the moment I'm hunting or at, or at the moment of its death. And, um, and that can be a really uncomfortable position. And it's really easy to imagine yourself being chased by hounds and having them gain on you and, and knowing that you're doomed. And that kind of, that kind of bothers me. So the, the title of this piece really gets at this weird thing that I think a lot of exper us experience in hunting, which is applying the golden rule to it. And, and no one wants to be killed. Um, but if you were going to be killed, if you were going to die, how would you, how would you hope to die? How would you not want to die? And so for me, obviously clean kill is part of it. I mean, if hunting has made me think so much about how I'd like to die and I'm, I'm, I say I'm pretty terrified of diseases like cancer and my mother has dementia and that's just about the most horrifying thing ever. I wouldn't recommend it. Um, but to me, I think about the big game animals I've shot where they either die instantly or they drop and bleed out in a minute. Um, and that's a pretty good way to go. So you compare that with hunting over hounds where the animal is running and, you know, maybe it feels fear or maybe it's just like, oh, gosh, here we go again with these dogs. Um, and, and it makes you think, OK, I just chased an animal how I would not want to be chased. I would rather be ambushed than to go on that long, fearful chase. And, and where, does, where does that put me? Did I, did I apply the golden rule to this hunt? And I think I applied, for the longest time, I applied that judgment to people who hunted with hounds because it's like, oh, I wouldn't want to be killed that way, so I why would I want to hunt that way? But I had a friend who was an avid houndsman. He liked hunting pigs with hounds. He was really into it. They liked going in close and using knives and all sorts of stuff. They'd be like, no way, I do not want to get close to those tusks like that. Um, but he and I had this conversation. And I told him, I said, yeah, I'd rather just be ambushed and not know it's coming. And he's like, oh, my God, you're crazy. I would much rather have a chance to get away and that chance to escape. And it occurred to me at that moment, it's like, wow, he's actually applying the golden rule to his hunting. If he were the game animal, he would want the chance to use his wits to escape those dogs and those hunters. And that to me was the sort of the second point of the piece, which is, you know, we get, we as hunters get judged all the time, but we also do a lot of judging within our hunting community. And we tend to assume that if people hunt differently than we do, that they lack our morals or our empathy or our values or our ethics. And that conversation with that pig hunter really laid it out for me that that's not necessarily the case. He didn't lack ethics or values at all. He just had different ethics or values than I did. So for me, it was a real wake up moment about 
thinking about where other people come from and not just judging them because they don't think like I do. Um, and that's something I think we need a lot more of in this world. And mic drop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you there's know, some, so many deep like life lessons in there, Holly. I mean, I, I <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm feeling like I've got my little morals checked on today. That's awesome. <laughs> well, well, thank you. One of the things that strikes me and I, um, we're recording a, a mini series on chronic wasting disease right now, Artemis, um, along with NWF Outdoors, and I'm one of the hosts for it. And on one of the recent episodes, we talk about, uh, we're not going to digress into this on this episode, but some things, some practices around big game hunting that um, can promote the spread of CWD and other diseases. And it, one of the things I mentioned was that hunting is a very cultural thing. I mean, it's, you know, Holly, you are an adult onset hunter. Morgan and I started hunting as kids. We um, learned from our dads. And I think, you know, historically that's, has been how people um, have come to be hunters, at least in the United States, it's changing now. Um, But it's a culture that's passed Mm -hmm. down to you. So it's interesting to be in a position now, you know, as a fully, what I consider fully grown adult, I guess, um, now I'm interacting with people who hunt differently than I do. And I'm starting to like, I formulate my own ideas about what, what's ethical, what's not. And it's, uh, I don't know. It's interesting because I don't, I truly do not believe that there is a hard line right or wrong for most things. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's going to be good to talk about it because I feel like I'm rambling now, but just the the idea that hunting is cultural. And so, you know, when culture is passed down to you, you can move forward in your life and take parts of it that work for you and try to let go of parts that maybe don't, but sometimes it's hard to separate those parts out from the whole. So. Yeah. And, and I, since I didn't start hunting until I was 41 and my dad hunted before I was born and I didn't start hunting, but he stopped before I was born. Um, and then I didn't start hunting until after he died. And so I never had my dad's influence. So because dad said so is never something you will hear coming out of my mouth when I'm talking about hunting. And so I'm, I'm actually like a giant 56 year old, two year old. If you, if you, (laughs) if you, if you tell me that's unethical, I'm going to be like, why, why tell me why, tell me why I I hunted in New Zealand and New Zealand has two laws that stand to, that just blow my mind or one is a lack of a law. So in New Zealand, you can kill animals. I'm not sure if this applies to all animals, but it applied to the birds we were hunting. You can kill animals and leave them in the field to rot. Uh, In California, that's illegal. And I think it's illegal in many states. And I think it's highly immoral. Like, why would you take a life without a purpose? I mean, just you know, no, that, that really bugs the hell out of me. But that was perfectly legal. Their state, or their nation, national fish and game agency was trying hard to get people to eat more of what they kill. And, and, and so that's good on them, but that's not what their law is. Meanwhile, if you shoot a bird on the ground or on the water, unless it's a cripple that you're dispatching, um, that's a $5,000 fine. And Whoa. so, yeah, right. So my host told me that and I'm like, why? And he said, because it's unethical. And I said, why? <laughs> and and you know when you just act like a two-year-old and keep saying why eventually people go 
uh, yeah, because I mean, when you think about it, killing a bird on the ground or the water, there's good reasons to do it and not to do it in terms of dog safety and, you know, what's going to happen to the animal and are you going to destroy it and will you have shot it for nothing? But, you know, an animal that's a foot off the ground versus on the ground, they're both pretty darn vulnerable. And I'm hard pressed for anyone to convince me that shooting it on the ground is somehow morally inferior and 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 degenerate in some fashion than shooting it a foot off the ground or the water so so yeah but that's but that's how he viewed it he's like oh it's unethical like okay why <laughs> i love those it's, it's just like why do we um, you never hear people shooting turkeys on the limb I, mm -hmm. there, there, there are some places where people shoot them on the wing actually i had a chance to once but i was afraid i was going to shoot my friend he's like ah holly you should have done it but, <laughs> good friend but it, but right, right. Now, like, like you say it's, it, it, there is that culture of what is the, the ethics is tied to the culture you know right. somewhere along yeah. the way it's like oh that that's that that's not fair like one of your essays um and i this is a very simple sentence but it just i underlined it twice killing isn't fair yeah like, period hard stop yeah. So what are we trying to construct in our minds that may essentially make us feel better? Like, yeah, you know, if, if the animal's dying either way, what, what, do, what do we need in our heads to make us feel better about this decision um, or this, this, this action? Right. And, you know, I had, when I was still blogging, I was doing one of my, you know, navel gazing uh, posts on my old blog and a friend of mine who grew up evangelical she's like holly i love watching you work through this because i grew up evangelical and god gave us dominion over animals and that's that um so it's 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 really fun to me to noodle over it and to think about where we come from and there have been some great books i've been heavily my influenced by a lot of the reading I've done. And, and there was a book that came out a few years back called Hunting Philosophy for Everyone. It's a philosophy series aimed at lay people, not academics. And it talked a lot about the things we do as a culture. It's like, what do we do to make killing okay? Like, do we have rituals about it? Do we have certain things, conditions that have to be satisfied? Uh, and it's fascinating because I think really at its core, if you really sit and think about it, most of us realize it's like, oh, taking a life, that's a pretty serious, heavy thing. And so you have to, you have to have ways of dealing with that because, you know, not eating is not an option. Becoming a vegetarian for me is not an option. So, you know, when you eat on this planet, you are eating plants and animals. And there's so much research now about the sentience of plants. Wow, we're learning a lot of stuff about them. So I don't feel too great about like whacking plants either. Um, although it's obviously not the same as stopping a beating heart. But well, it's like you said, how do you, what do you do to separate yourself from that? You go to the right. grocery store and get it from plastic. Like nothing, right. yeah, are, are we, ourselves so we don't have to think about those things. Um, and, and that's the way that our culture's kind of evolved over, I guess, what the last, you know, what, 150 years, this idea that we're not responsible for before that. We, we take that responsibility the way away away from ourselves by going to the grocery store right right and that and i've you know even my worst kills and i'm a bird hunter which means i use a shotgun which means all the kills are not pretty and there have been some where i look back on them and cringe and i feel horrible there's a story of a a hen teal i shot where it took like six follow-up shots together because she was too close and i was shooting bb's and she just kept quacking at me. And if you've ever heard a hen teal quack, it's like a little mallard on helium. And it was this terrified quack. And, mm -hmm. and oh God, I felt like the 
biggest jerk on earth. It was really, it was really hard. And for years and years and years, every time I killed a hen teal, I'd feel really guilty, much more than a drake. And it's like, why is that? And then I would remember that one. But even that, even as horrible as that was, I would take that any day and every day over the things that we do to chickens and pigs and cows yeah. for to produce most of the domestic meat that's eaten in this country any day mm-hmm. every day this could, this could be an entire <laughs> episode unto itself and i couldn't agree more holly we don't i years ago started boycotting fast food chicken i'm gonna i'm not even gonna digress on this yes we <laughs> We agree. We're in agreement. Um, We are going to take a very quick break to hear from our sponsors. South Dakota is expanding pheasant hunting's horizons and giving sportswomen a greater voice in the field. The connection to nature, the adrenaline of the hunt, the satisfaction of eating the game you harvest. Hunting is our shared legacy. Everyone is welcome to enjoy it. Go to huntthegreatestsd.com to hear stories from women who hunt and learn what makes South Dakota the world's pheasant capital. That's huntthegreatestsd.com. South Dakota, sportswomen welcome. Another elk and deer test positive for CWD in Idaho. CWD detected for the first time in Alabama. The CWD Research and Management Act sails through passage in the House. There's no doubt CWD is in the news and there's no doubt it's spreading across the country. There's also no doubt it's a complicated disease and a complicated issue. Artemis and NWF Outdoors are here to help. Check out the CWD Chronicles, where we talk to leading experts about the latest science, policy, and hopes for the future regarding chronic wasting disease. Find it on the NWF Outdoors channels or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. So the subject that we are here to talk about today is really just hunting with dogs um, and everything associated with the ethics of that or the perceived ethics, um, culture, what have you. So let's start out with a question I'm going to pose to, to Holly and Morgan. Is hunting birds over a dog different than hunting large mammals with dogs? I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to say yes and no. And the the yes different one is duck hunting because when you use dogs for duck hunting you're using dogs to retrieve or find the game that you have already killed and in in some cases a dog might walk ahead of you if you're jump shooting and, and flush a duck but for the most part they're retrieving but i would say they're really really similar when we're talking about hunting upland birds with dogs and hunting um hunting big game especially you know bears like a was hunting in the killing essay and and you know you can hunt mountain lions with them as well and hogs you know those dogs are doing basically the same thing they're taking game that would be hard for us to see or get to or catch up with 
and putting it in a position where we can take a shot. And that's what we do with upland birds. I mean, we know they're around, the dog can smell them, we can't smell them, the smart birds will hold tight or, or flush before we can get to them. And the dog's job is to make it so that we can be close enough to take a shot when the bird flushes. And with the bear hunt in particular, you know, I was hunting with these guys for a couple of days and, and we, it was really slow hunting. And one, one day, one of them, one of the guys saw a track on the side of the road and he sent his dogs and it was a real cold track. It, it was pretty old, but those dogs found that bear, I think, gosh, within 20 minutes um, somehow. And so put her up a tree and then the houndsmen were able to take a look and say, okay, make sure she's not, a, make sure it's not a wet sow. It was a female, but she wasn't lactating. Um, make sure it's not a cub. We can't kill cubs here and nor do we want to kill cubs. And so they could sit there and make the choice of, is this a shot we want to take? And then I got to make the shot. Um, I think the biggest difference that I can hear some people arguing with this already is that with an upland bird, there's more skill in the shot and, and I will, absolutely say that I was 15 yards from you know a, a bear in a tree and I'm normally not a super great quick rifle shot but I took the shot really quickly and she came right down and um, so that's a little bit different I mean that animal's a little bit pinned whereas there's a little bit more challenge to shooting a bird that's flying away because it can fly in lots of weird directions and a bear coming out a tree is coming out one way it's going down um, so there's distinctions like that, but I think it's really in the degree of challenge, and I don't judge myself, ethically speaking, by how challenging a shot is. I like to judge myself by the humaneness of my kill, you know, mm -hmm. which is always my goal. So I think these two things are really similar, but, you know, there's the, the history and culture of upland bird hunting is... Um, sometimes a little bit more elite than other forms of hunting because it's a mm -hmm. it's a it's calorie negative pursuit really chasing birds i mean the put, amount of effort we'll put into a little quail is just absurd um and it's well, more you something have you, to, you need the resources to fund the dog and you know to house it and feed it when it's not it's it's like golf for hunting i feel like it, yeah it, it is and i love it and it's uh, bird hunting is my favorite thing on earth so I'm i'm definitely not trying to denigrate it but you look at the history of hunting bears over hounds, and that is a primarily Southern pursuit. And, and I mentioned this in my essay, uh, this country does not respect the South. Uh, and I, I learned this vividly when I moved to Virginia in 1997, I was a lifelong Californian and I got to know Virginians. And then I got to realize how much people in this country will view a Southern accent as a sign of stupidity and how things that are Southern are kind of tainted and so I think there's just a, a lot more stigma to this form of hunting. It's a it's a different a different subset culturally, a very different subset culturally, of the hunting community. Morgan, what do you think? <laughs> yeah. Did yeah. I give you anything? <laughs> let Let me t turn on my scarlet bill or my scarlet. <laughs> oh my gosh! Just kidding. I don't even do a very good one. Um. Yeah. I mean. I. I but I would think it's it's even within the South. So I'm from South Carolina. I grew up here, hunted here my whole life. Um, and we hunt. So when I think about um, hunting with dogs here, deer, deer drives is something that is very much still done um, in, in our state. Um, it's done on the property adjacent to my family's property in, in the lower part of the state. And it's seen there, there are people that uh, it, it's just seen as different. I grew up still hunting 
which for us, and that's that's a regionally different um, uh, vernacular as well, sitting in a deer stand versus like we don't really stalk because you can't see anything because it's so dense. Um, so the experience of deer driving to me is more, I've, I've never understood it in terms of two things. One, um, safety. You will, you will, during deer season, you will go down a, 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 um, a rural road, and this could be a semi-major thoroughfare. I mean, this is like a four-lane highway, but a two-lane highway, and you will see pickup trucks up on down the side of the road with orange, orange vests on and shotguns. And I remember as a kid never understanding how, how does this work? <laughs> what happens when, I know how excited I get when a deer steps out, but when a deer is running towards me, you know, with that, with the uh, running towards me and across, across the road and you have a shotgun, um, I always, always considered it a safety thing. And then as well, I understood it to be that the meat was not going to be as good um, in terms of just that that deer had been run so hard. Hmm. So um, I think that, I think about that, I think about the hogs, is people still um, use, um, they, they'd say that you were talking about hunting um, hogs with, with dogs and knives. I did participate in a rabbit hunt last weekend um, or two weekends ago, which was phenomenal. But as you sat there talking about what the animal is experiencing, yeah, that animal had a had a had an opportunity to get away, maybe. But in that case, if he would have slipped up a little bit, that dog would have been on him and ripped him apart. Yeah. So you know, I hadn't really. You know, you put these things in categories. Like, oh, I've never had an interest in bear hunting over dogs, but I went on a rabbit hunt and didn't think twice about it. Uh-huh. Uh huh. So it's so interesting, like how. In my growing up, you know, my culture, the deer drives were, weren't something that, you know, was really a thing that I, that I was going to participate in. It was more annoying than anything because the, the dogs get on your property. <laughs> but um, but yet I was happy to jump into something else. So I, I think the South does have um, certainly, you know, there, there's that redneck vision of what the South is. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to say we are much more than that. Um, but, it, it, but, it, but it is prevalent. It, it is there. And I, and what I've learned though, there are rednecks everywhere. You got them in California. I know you do. You probably oh, yes, we do. You, you met them duck hunting this year. I mean, there, there are rednecks everywhere. It is not just exclusive to below the Mason Dixon line. Yeah. Um, so I, I think, you know, there's it, it, this, your article, I think that's why I said it to Ashley really challenged me to think about why this and not that. Yeah. And if, if, you, if you're willing to do it for one, you, you it shouldn't, you, I think we all have the ability to, okay, this isn't for me, but do I support the effort for somebody else to be able to do it if they want to? Right. And, and, and can you get past the stereotyping? I mean, for me, one of the first things that whacked my stereotype long before I did the bear hunt was I watched a Ted Nugent show. And if you've watched any Ted Nugent shows, you know, the guy sits in a stand and plucks off animals that are right below him. So he does a lot of uh, like low effort hunting, but he went on a bear hunt with hounds and he was working really hard. And he's like, dang, this is really hard work. And it's like, okay, you know, he just told me it's hard work. I've seen how he hunts. I'm seeing what he's doing. And, and that's the, the big thing. It's like, can you get out of your assumptions long enough to say, what is the reality of this thing? Um, and is the reality of this thing more than what anti-hunters are telling me? And, you know, idiotic videos that people put on YouTube that they probably shouldn't put on YouTube. So one of the things that strikes me as we talk about this is there's kind of two frameworks for decision-making around the type of hunting that you're okay with and that you're going to participate in or not. And one is Holly, you've mentioned stereotypes a number of times. And I feel like 
probably for a lot of people that is a big part of um, their inclination to participate in something or not. But something else that we've um, touched on and that is for me more so, I would say the way that I make decisions is the perspective of the quarry. Like thinking about, like you said, putting yourself in um, the animal's shoes and thinking about how they're perceiving the situation and the impact that it's having on them. And I found this um, really interesting research paper. Actually, I found it when I was um, in grad school. I think it was published in 2018. I'll link to it in the show notes. Um, But basically, they maybe, um, I don't know if either of you have heard of this. Let me know as I'm talking about it if you have. But basically, these researchers took roe deer and I think um, another species of deer, and they measured their blood cortisol under various um, situations. So they stress them out with disturbance, whether it be um, just like a person in their vicinity or being chased by hounds. Um, And they measured trauma, like deer that had been hit by cars or deer that had been shot and then tracked for, you know, a certain length of time before they were dispatched, um, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I can't summarize the whole paper in a couple of sentences, but it's, I'll say it's very interesting to see at least as, um, as described through blood cortisol, uh, what is the most stressful or traumatic for an animal? Like vehicle collisions are much worse than being hunted, wow. being shot, being shot. Um, and then being, um, tracked by hounds or by a bunch of people is, it's kind of a horse apiece. Hmm. Um, but they're both pretty bad. <laughs> so it's ambush is definitely the least stressful, um, which I think is intuitive probably. So there's just hmm. less time there for anything to happen physiologically. But that to me is, I just bring that up because I feel like a lot of, a lot of the sussing out around would I want this to happen to me is just us trying to put ourselves in the shoes of something that first of all, doesn't wear shoes. And second of all, we can't, right? Like the way they don't care. care. Well, I don't know. Like, I I don't think they care about how their killer feels. I'll agree with you on that, but we, their perception of the world is different than ours. Mm -hmm. And I, and I think it's, it's not, it's not just a difference between human and non-human animal perception it's a cultural thing because you look at maybe some indigenous cultures where there is a much greater understanding that life is full of risks and babies die and children die and people have bad accidents and they get infected and and bad things happen to them and in our society in particular we feel a vast sense of entitlement to live i mean we really feel Mm -hmm. entitled to it and guess what there is no right. There is no right to live. You Once you're born, you have a right to do your damn best to mm-hmm. stay alive. And that's it. And animals live closer to that. And and we don't. And so I think sometimes we put that on the animals we hunt. And that's one of the things I fall back on is, you know, everything undergoes stress. If you're a prey animal, people, things are after you all the time, all the time. I mean, I, I, I do banding i banned morning doves in my backyard as a volunteer for the state of california and so i watch them all the time because i set traps for them and i want to go out right away if they're in a trap because there's cats in the neighborhood and i don't want them getting killed by a cat under my watch and and 
I watch them and they are nervous as hell. They are constantly on the watch because they know that things are out to get them. They know that they're delicious and they're probably mm -hmm. aware that they're not the smartest birds out there. I mean, really, in my backyard, almost every other bird is smarter. And I, I love doves. I respect the intelligence of animals, but they're just not the brightest. So, <laughs> so I mean, that's the thing. It's like most animals realize that bad things happening, being chased, something trying to eat you, that this is part of your life experience. And no one wants it, but <laughs> there ain't no Shangri-La experience for wild animals. They don't get to just sit back and be like, oh, nothing's ever going to bother me because I'm entitled to not be bothered and stressed out by anything because it just doesn't work that way. And so, nature is cruel. Nature is oh, inherently, yeah. inherently cruel. And I think that that's... Um, you know, you think about which one do we want to go? I would much rather go, rather go, even chased by hog, uh, dogs on top of a tree than to be, you know, half eaten by a crocodile. And then, you know, yeah, I'm just, you know, so I'm saying like there's so many cruel, nature is so much more cruel than anything that comes out of my gun. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, 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 the things you've seen where, where, where a predator is eating the intestines out of like a baby antelope while it's still standing. I mean, there's mm -hmm. just some stuff that's just horrific where um, I think most of us would not eat an animal while it's still alive. I think it's pretty safe to say that. You know, but then yeah, again, that's just. I have to, Holly, do you enjoy those pictures? Nature is metal. I think it's on Instagram. I look at all of those, and my mom asked me the other day. She's like, "Why do you keep looking at it?" I said, "Because nature is amazing. It is amazing to me that that's the circle of life. Whether the intestines are getting eating out, like I understand that it's gross, but I still think it's it's beautiful in a way." Like, I, well, I does to live. Well, now that you've said it, I'll, I'll tell you, I got a, there's a photographer out there, uh, David Stymack, and I might be pronouncing his last name incorrectly. Uh, he's a wonderful waterfowl photographer. And in his collection, he has a shot that I took, I that he took, I believe in Michigan. And it's an overhead of two dead um, hooded mergansers. Hooded mergansers? Um, I can't remember which kind of merganser it is, but they were frozen in the ice and they were curled up next to each other. And you could see that the hen's head was draped on the drake's body as they were dying. And it is profoundly sad and profoundly touching. And when I think about it, I also know when you have hyperthermia, eventually it stops hurting. And that's mm -hmm. when you know you're going to die. Um, but you know, there's two animals that huddled together and tried to make it as long as they could and didn't make it. And I love that photo. I don't think my boyfriend would want to want me hanging it in any common area of our house, but I'm looking for any piece of wall where I can hang it because it's like, that is what happens in nature. I mean, we think we're the only ones who kill ducks. And it's like, no, all kinds of other nature kills ducks, in, including that. And I'm also fascinated by those moments. The, the only thing I don't like looking at is uh, like gratuitous kill shots. Like for a while, there was this YouTube thing that kept coming up in my Google search, like slow motion kill shots. And it's like, mm. that's just gratuitous and gross, honestly. It's, it's like, reminds me of, there was a, a photo that someone took in the instant before a guy got hit by a subway train in New York. And mm. so you could see him there and it was like inches from impact. And you look at that and you're thinking, and you are there in that moment where he is about to die and he knows it. And something about that moment is really personal to me. And that kind of bugs me. But other than that, I, I, I do appreciate seeing what really happens in nature. And I absolutely take sides and I usually root for the prey. <laughs> Well, and I think it's interesting talking about, you know, you say kill shots like that, that moment, I, I can't, I would love to hear what you both have to say about this. But for me personally, when I'm hunting, when I, 
shoot an animal, there's a trajectory that I go through every time. And it's, it's varies. It's different depending on the situation, maybe who I'm with the animal, um, that I'm hunting, that I'm shooting, but there's some parts of it that don't feel good, Mm -hmm. right? Like there's parts of it that I don't enjoy. I actually dislike that. I have to actively either push aside or, you know, mull over later even if overall I'm, I'm happy, I'm out there recreating. It's a great, you know, like it's my choice to be there. Um, and I don't know, hunting is one of the, maybe the only, but certainly one of the few activities that I do that takes me through that trajectory regularly. It makes me reckon with something that I know I don't like, I know I'm not going to like, but I know it's going to happen and I'm able to navigate it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, 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 I agree. And I, I don't always put myself in the heads of the animals that I am shooting and trying to kill or killing or, you know, with birds. I think the hardest time is when I've wounded a bird, it's on the water and then I've got to go kill it um, and chase it often to kill mm-hmm. it since I don't have a dog to get it for me. Um, and those are the hardest moments because that, you know, once I started hunting, I thought things like you just shoot them and give up and die. That was my Hollywood impression of things. And then once I started hunting, I realized, oh, no, everything fights like hell. Nothing wants to hand itself to you. There is no, oh, take me. I'm yours. You know, they are trying really hard to get away from you. And and those are definitely the hardest moments. And I go into sort of a, um, a very business-like mode. It's like, this must be mm-hmm. done now. So I don't get caught up in it later. But I, but I think about it. I definitely think about it. how can you not? I mean, how can you? You're taking things lives. And You'd have to be a serial killer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Which, there's. I, I met a few people who didn't care. A few people who were really callous about animal suffering and death. But for the most part, I find hunters to be way more in tune and to want um, more merciful deaths than most people, honestly. Well, so here's here's a thing to throw in the mix. So we hunt hogs, actually planning for our hog hunt this weekend. And um, we also hunt deer a good bit. And somebody, I can't remember who it was, there was a kid coming and they're like, okay, well, he can, he's not killed a deer, but a hog's a good thing to start off and, you know, shoot him in the back of the head, it drops generally. And it's not that big of a deal if he misses. <laughs> and I remember that, that, thinking that. about it, like, they're like the pressures that, and they, I think that, I think it might've been my dad said the pressure's not on when it's a deer versus a hog. And I, and I remember thinking about it later, but why? Right. I am like, but, but we put a higher value on deer than we do hogs. They are more plentiful and they are, they, they are a pest. And so I think by nature of being a pest, they probably do get put in a different category altogether, but I, I still, want to make a good shot that I, I still and I'll, I'll say the hog deserves and I know that I'm putting a a, a, a feeling to them that they don't have but I, I feel my, my I feel like my obligation to come to the table is that I'm going to make a good shot and I, I had a one time um, on our hog hunt a few years ago where I did not and that hog suffered for a while but I did not feel safe enough to get out because there were a bunch of hogs around so I didn't feel safe enough and I, I will never do that again I will I will get out and stop that hog suffering because that was not that tainted the rest of the weekend for me. Um, no, uh-huh. it doesn't stop me, but it, it tainted because, like, what? Why did I make that decision? I let my fear, you know, um, you know, even though I had a rifle, which is the other thing I was thinking about, that uh, I could have defended myself, but you know, I let that overcome something that I should have taken care of. Um, versus, if it had been a deer, I would have jumped right down and taken care of it. 
Well, and I, I think the value judgment you're talking about is really interesting because where we really see that the most is in fish. Like there's people mm -hmm. who think hunting is horrifying, but throwing a fish on the deck to have it flop around while it can't breathe is like, oh, who cares? It's just a fish. And I think one of the first books I read that really made a big impression on me was Mary Zai Stang's Woman the Hunter. And she had, there was a passage in there that really, really made things clear for me. She said in, in these indigenous hunter-gatherer cultures, um, you know, all animals are kin, all animals of land and air are kin, but fish are other. And it's like, it's like the original bigotry um, that <laughs> who cares about fish and, and society is way more okay with whacking fish than whacking these other animals. And honestly, society is way more okay with whacking birds than like deer and bear. And it's like, yeah. so you're telling me the bear or the deer has more individual worth than the duck? You know, I work for a conservation organization, so I know a little bit about ducks and, and geese and, you know, geese generally mate for life, although they get divorced and ducks have social lives. And, and you know, each each one of those lives has inherent value, I think. Um, it, it's narcissism. That's what yeah, <laughs> we see yeah. ourselves yeah. in large mammals more readily than reptiles or birds. I heard somebody say one time it's animals with um, eyelashes. <laughs> Ooh, that's a good one. If, if you stop and think about it, like what has I, I mean, cause that's that beautiful little doe eyed, you know, freaking Bambi that started this all like it's um, you know, that that's, we can relate to that better. But I, I, get, I totally agree with you, Holly. We went iguana hunting this year and there was one that needed to be knocked in the head one more time. And I like stopped the guy. I'm like, I know you say it doesn't feel pain. It's an iguana. Let's finish it. Like, mm -hmm. I just, I can't, I couldn't sit there and have it sitting looking at me like that. that it's an iguana. It's a pest. We were eliminating it, but, but still, I, I don't well, want to sit there and pop it on the deck. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that Morgan, because in this um, conversation about feral hogs, I have I mean, maybe some qualms, but I would kill a hog and leave it lay if I didn't have the means, like if it was a really hot day, it crossed my path, like I'm not going to be able to process it and get it in the freezer, et cetera, et cetera. Um, because they are so incredibly destructive to ecosystems. Like they're just, they're an invasive species that is ruining so much of, um, many parts of the country. And so to me, the ethical thing when I come across a hog is to dispatch it, but I would not send buckshot in the general direction of where I thought a hog was. I would, you know, like with a rifle or a shotgun with a slug, take a good clean shot to the vitals. And like, so I don't, even within this like category, I have my own moral code that I feel like is appropriate. And it's just my I love own. this conversation, man. This is, this is, that's really, that's really cool. And I'm glad you have that code. Well, and But I, where did it come from? That's what I want to know. And then, it's different than my husband's. And, how does, and, how did, and then does it change? Right. right? Mm -hmm. Yes. So like, I reserve the right to change it. Mm -hmm. like, I, I, I reserve the right to, to have a different opinion. I might go beer hunting one day. I'm not going, it's not on my bucket list of things to do, but I'm also would be a proponent for helping somebody if they want to continue bear hunting, like, you know, guard the gate or whatever those things are in terms of ensuring hunting for everybody. But I, I might change that opinion. You know, mm -hmm. I don't, I don't agree with the guy, the guy driving deer next to us that runs his dogs that become, you know, can't even stand because they haven't eaten, you know, I'm not going to support him, but 
I can, I can change my opinion because there are, I think, circumstances within the habitat and the culture that can change that. Yeah, it's, it's, I, I don't think I would change in the direction of not caring about those animals that I kill because hunting has just made me like a weirdo. If I'm not trying to kill you to eat you, then I'm probably going to go out of my way to save you. Like yeah. I, I rescue worms from the Turtles sidewalk anyone? after the rain and spiders that get stuck in my bathtub. I, I, I pull them out and, you know, take them outside or put them in a better place inside where they might find a moth or something tasty like that. Um, and so I don't think I'm going to go in the direction of caring less. Cause that was actually my biggest fear when I started hunting is like, Oh man, am I going to become really callous about the suffering of animals? And, and I was afraid I might turn into a monster. And then I found it was the opposite. And it's like, Oh, thank God. Cause I didn't want to be a monster. I would hope that no hunters would have that. I mean, that's what I remember somebody saying is like, you shoot that deer, you shoot whatever. And, it's, and it doesn't, it doesn't hit you anymore. If it doesn't resonate with you anymore, then you need to stop doing it. Yeah. I agree. If, if it doesn't, touch you in some way then, then that's it's probably time for you to put it up because it's it, it's supposed to uh, and i think the majority of, of us out there it does and that's um, and, that's what's so amazing about it and i think even when you know when you talk about the people who don't seem to to let it get to them i i wrote an article gosh really early on i wrote an op-ed for the sacramento bee like in my second or third year of hunting and i talked about the sadness at the moment of the kill and a guy reached out to me and he's like I thought I was the only one who felt that. Mm. And so here's a guy who'd been experiencing that when he hunted, undoubtedly hunted with lots of other guys, didn't feel he had the license to say that. And this is one of the thing I think is fun about being a woman hunter is like we're expected to be in touch with our emotions. So I can talk about sadness and emotions and hunting all day long. And I don't think guys have that luxury. So I think a lot of guys um, put a hard shell over it. Because mm -hmm. that's what, what society teaches them to do. And, you know, maybe, maybe there is, maybe it's not a hard shell. Maybe it's a hard interior as well. But, but I, I think, I think they think about it too, but they're just conditioned differently than we are. Yeah, it's the culture. There's some quote somewhere along the way, you know, because turkey hunters are a different breed altogether, but they talked about, they, they hunted this bird for three or four days and they finally shot him. And it's like, what I wouldn't give to bring him back to life so I could do it all over again. Oh, weird. Yeah, that is weird. <laughs> <laughs> but the idea that there is more to it than just killing the turkey, the idea that the, yeah. the hunt and the and the experience and the and for turkey hunting in particular, you have that give and take of, of the, the the prey and the predator. Okay. Um, I don't think that's a bad thing, though. I think that's an appreciation of the whole experience. Oh, but yeah. Here, here, that reminds me of, okay, so a few years ago in graduate school, I was sitting every year we would go to this um, conference called the Southeast Deer Study Group. And it's, I mean, if you want a room full of 300 deer nuts, just buy a ticket. Um, and by nature of what I was studying in grad school, I went there every year. And I was sitting next to um, one of my coworkers, basically. And somebody was up there talking about, um, I don't know, some Boone and Crockett thing, all about you know, the nice antlers of all the deer that were harvested. And they closed their talk by saying, it's all for the deer. It's, you know, it's everything we do is for the deer. And I leaned over and I said, no, it's not. If it was all for the deer, <laughs> they would just take pictures. Like if it was all for the deer, they wouldn't just kill, kill the deer. Like, this is crazy. Like I'm sitting here, I'm a deer hunter. I love deer. I love everything about deer and I'm calling BS on this. <laughs> And I don't, that I kind of made that. me think of that. I agree. I agree. Actually, you have to own that. Like, I enjoy, I might be sad that this animal is dead, 
But I tell you, I'm pretty damn happy when it is. Like, I yeah. feel, I feel like I, maybe this gets into the, your next article, Holly, we'll help you for it. But that this idea of killing or harvesting or whatever we want to call it, like, I don't think, I feel like there's, with all the stuff going on about hunting and like, I feel like I, there's, the culture is telling me that I should be ashamed that I, that I, I enjoy it when it's dead. When I, when I killed that buck in December at the Artemis hunt and it dropped, I could not have been more excited because mm-hmm. I did my job. Right. And, but, and I think, and, and the mission was accomplished. You know, I sat there, you know, all the different things that led up to that, the, the, the learning and the experience and getting to know the deer and those things, the things. So I feel like we shouldn't, that, I, I think it would be, um, uh, we would be omitting a good bit if we didn't, weren't able to acknowledge that there is joy in it. Oh yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's goes back to what my friend, um, um, Phil taught me, uh, about owning up to the fact that we do it because it makes it happy, makes us happy. And we bring a lot of joy out of it. It's just not the bloodthirsty joy people think of getting off on the moment of the kill. It's the joy of the whole thing. And I, I tell you, I, I think often about the fact that we have to explain ourselves to society all the time. And, you know, the idea of 10,000 years ago, us having to explain why we enjoy the hunt would have been unthinkable. I mean, absolutely unthinkable and, and, and not for nothing, but do you think the Peregrine's not having fun when he's in full stoop going like 200 miles an hour and he's about to whack whatever his prey is, some duck sitting on the beach or something. And I've seen footage of that and it is awesome. Mm-hmm. But like, do you think they're not having fun? Do you think the lions don't enjoy their, their hunt? It's like, of course, of course yeah. we enjoy it. We wouldn't do it if we didn't enjoy it. None of us would do it. And I just don't think humans have to play by separate emotional rules from animals in terms of loving to do the things that enable us to survive and thrive. I agree with you. And from an evolutionary perspective, like if we didn't enjoy it, we wouldn't do it. We wouldn't be here. Exactly. Exactly. So I don't know. That's another thing that I love and cherish about hunting is that I feel like it is one of, I hate using the word primal because it's got a lot of connotations with it, but it is one of those things that I think can really bring me to myself as a human um, more so than maybe anything else that I do. Riding horses also feels like that to me. Um, mm-hmm. But those two things are kind of, yeah. Yeah, to to me too, that like uh, I was asked to do an essay for the Centers for Humans and Nature and they, they do a question series where they ask people to write about it. And um, the question was, does hunting make us human? And I was one of the people they asked to write about it. So I wrote about it and and, you know, the question itself isn't the most pertinent thing, but for me, the final thing that I came to is when I'm hunting, I feel like I'm home because mm-hmm. home isn't these buildings and streets and cities that we've constructed for ourselves and supermarkets and all this. We came from nature. That's home. And when I am in nature, I'm in the place I'm supposed to be. And it's like, yeah, we've adapted really well to civilization, but the reality is deep down, we all came from nature and that's where we're happiest any child can tell you that you only Mm -hmm. forget about it when you become an adult and you get wrapped up in this world of, Oh, let's get a degree, make a bunch of money, buy a really big house, blah, 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 have a heart attack and die. (laughs) In the air conditioning. (laughs) Yeah. Don't. Well, I live in Sacramento, so I'm never going to talk about that. (laughs) It's hot here. (laughs) Yeah. Oh goodness. Should we talk about something lighthearted? Wow. This is so deep. So we're, we're coming to the end of this episode. (laughs) I feel like we could go on for four more hours and I really wanted to drop the bomb of trapping in here. (laughs) 
Because <laughs> I feel like that for me, and I think a lot of other hunters, that really makes you do an about face to all the things that you think you know. Um, and don't forget baiting, Ashley. Oh yeah, a whole nother episode um, that Morgan and I are going to do at some point, uh, one of these years, I'll say. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I feel like this this has been an incredible conversation. Um, I would love for it to go on so much longer, but we need to respect everyone's time, our listeners included. I appreciate um, that. <laughs> but Holly, I just thank you so much. Um, this has been wonderful, illuminating, and I think I'm probably going to have to become a subscriber myself. Yes, yes. <laughs> thank you so much. I appreciate that. It's $5 a month, just, just promoting it here, $5 a month or $50 for the year. Um, yeah, no, I'd love to have you there as part of the discussion because that's what it is. It's a discussion and I'm really looking forward to people really revving up the conversation and helping me to continue to grow in my thinking and calling BS on me where appropriate, where, you know, eventually it's going to happen. I know I'm not hundred percent right. So that's what yeah. good friends are for. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, this has been an incredible conversation. I've really enjoyed talking with you about these topics. This has been fantastic. Morgan, is there anything that you wanted to touch on before we wrap up? Oh, oh there's so much. I, I love this stuff. I, I, Ashley and I have done this a variety of different times, and we've been so excited to talk to you, Holly. I, I really um, admire so much that's what you're doing. Uh, I love the conversations, um, and uh, I just hope we can continue them. So oh, keep, yeah. Keep stuff out there. Oh, excellent. Thank you so much. I've, I've enjoyed it so much. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us this week on the Artemis podcast. We hope you're having a great week. Until next time, be bold, stay curious, and get outside. Mm -hmm.